adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. Father, we praise you and, and give you honor and praise. Father, there is not enough breath in this world to praise you for what you deserve. Father, I thank you for, for the sunshine. I thank you for this community. I thank you for this message. I thank you for the promise of your soon return. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So a couple years ago, you might remember this, on the campus of, of Oklahoma University, there was a fraternity that was heading to some kind of formal party, uh, and, I, and I'm pretty sure they were all dressed up, and, and they video recorded what was happening on the bus. And on the bus, they were chanting. They were making a chant, and I don't even, I wouldn't repeat it if I remembered it, but I don't remember it. But they were chanting a racial slur, basically saying that uh, these type of people will never be part of our fraternity. And as I investigated the story a little bit more, sadly, that was the fraternity that I am a part of. As you, if you do or don't know, I have not always lived a Christian lifestyle. And I did join a fraternity when I was in college, and it was, it, it was Sigma Alpha Epsilon. And I was very proud to be an SAE. Very proud to be an SAE. Um, we had a good name on, on campus. Uh, we were one of the biggest houses on campus, and I, and I loved the guys. But when I saw this, in my own heart, I was almost apologetic. I am a Sigma Alpha Epsilon, but that's not who we are. And, I, and as I think about this, we are apologetic about a lot of things. We're apologetic about, if, if you are, and I'm not asking for or hands or anything, I don't want to see it, but if you are a Republican, some of you might be apologetic on who you believe should be in the, in, the off, in the White House or not. You might say, I am a Republican, but, and there's always that but that comes in, you know, like, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I am, but. Or, or I am a Christian, but, I, but I, I'm a little bit more, you know, whatever it is. When I was in Korea, there were some people there that had a very unfond opinion of Americans. Because to some of them, we came in there, we have bases there. Well, let me tell you a story. While I was there. While I was there, and it was so sad, there were, you know, this is considered a hardship tour. Do you guys, any of you served in the military? Okay, you understand what a hardship tour is? So, they, so they're taken away, and they send these 18-year-old boys after basic training to act as men in a different country with, with a different culture, and there were these couple of 
American soldiers that were caught forcing themselves upon Korean women in, in an area that is where a lot of Americans would, would go around. And it made me almost ashamed to be American at that time. I, I am American, and I'm proud to be an American, but at that time, that's not us. That's not what an American stands for. I hope not. Have you ever caught yourself? Now, I'm making an assumption. I, I, my assumption is that most of you are Seventh-day Adventists, and some of you may not be Seventh-day Adventists, and you're going to sort of have to endure through this, and I hope that, that you learn something from this. But have, have some of you as Seventh-day Adventists been apologetic for being a Seventh-day Adventist because other people don't understand. And actually, have you been apologetic for what you believe within Seventh-day Adventism? Yeah, I mean, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, but I'm not like that group of Seventh-day Adventists. And I feel in my heart, and I know I talked about this before, that the reason this happens at times is because people don't really understand what a Seventh-day Adventist really believes. We don't know what the core of our message is. If I asked all of you, what is a Seventh-day Adventist? You give me, you've got three sentences to tell me what a Seventh-day Adventist is. Do you think I'd get the same answer? No. And then it depends on, you know, if I go to Michigan Conference versus Southern California Conference, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get totally different answers. I want to read, I want to read to you from Patriarchs and Prophets. And I know I said this in the fall, but this is so important to why we exist. Patriarchs and Prophets, chapter 1. These are the, this is the first book of the Conflict of the Ages series. The first three words go as this. God is love. Did you hear that? I'm going to read it again. God is love. 1 John 4, 16. His nature is, his law is love. It has ever been, it ever will be. The high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose ways are everlasting, changeth not, with him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every manifestation of creative power is an expression of infinite love. The sovereignty of God involves fullness of blessing to all created beings. The history of the great conflict between good and evil from the time it first began in heaven to the final overthrow of, a, of rebellion and total eradication of sin is the demonstration of God's unchanging love. Is there a word that is used there more than any other word? Love. If you are a Seventh-day Adventist, this is what you believe. God is love. And you probably already know this especially if you were here this fall when I spoke about this. In that Conflict of the Ages series, there are five books. 
which basically describe what happens in Scripture. The first is patriarchs and prophets. The second is prophets and kings, desire of ages, acts of the apostles, and the great controversy. Can you tell me what are the last three words? How does she end the great controversy? God is love. It's, it's, they're the bookends. Everything in between is filler to exclaim one message. God is love. If you want to tell people out there and within here, what does a Seventh-day Adventist believe? We believe God is love. That should be the, the first three words that come out of your mouth. What do you believe as a, God is love? Well, what does that mean? God is love. It means that God is love and everything that we believe, all the doctrines, everything stem out of one word, love. Rod and I were just talking here for a second. What Gary was playing if you, during the offertory, do you, do you remember the song that he played? It says, and they will know we are Christians by our love. Does it say, and they will know we are Adventists by our dress? No. Or by our diets? No. They will know that I am connected to Jesus Christ because of my love for one another. That's how people will know. And they will know that God is love. So I will tell you this right now. I am very, very proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And this is not a, a pride that comes within me. I am, I am humbly just, I am just thankful that I have come upon this message. And I, and I hope that through this series, because we're going to do a whole series about some of our Adventist belief, and hopefully they all come back to one phrase, which is, God is love. Now here, I'm going to get on maybe a couple of soapboxes throughout this series, and here is one of my soapboxes. Sadly to say, in my own experience, is that I, I have an opinion, okay? I have many opinions. This is one of my opinions. When I was growing up, and I heard about Seventh-day Adventism, uh, I would hear, Seventh-day Adventists are people of the book. They are the most, you know, we have the most doctrinally sound Bible-based beliefs. But through my experience in ministry, what I started realizing is, whether they're young or older, a lot of our people are not engaged in the word. Let me tell you a story when I was, uh, tell you how ignorant I was at first. Um, now, granted, I came from a little bit different, you know, I went to public school, I didn't, you know, we were sort of nominal Christian slash Adventist, but I took a, a, a class called Life and Teachings of Jesus, 
and it was by a guy named Ron Cluze. And this was my, my first semester at Southern Adventist University. I transferred from another university, and we had to write reports. We had to read like three chapters at a time of the book of John and through the Gospels, and, and we had to write a report. And so I'm reading through the book of John, and, I, and, uh, and there was a part where John the Baptist gets beheaded. You guys know this, right? He was beheaded. So I wrote my report. I said, Professor, I'm confused. If John was killed, how did he finish the book? And graciously, he says, they are two different Johns. And I thought, man, I am biblically ignorant. But as I have taught in academies, as I have been both head pastor and associate pastor, youth pastor, uh, chaplain, Bible teacher, I realize that our people are not in the word. And so how can you be, how can you be proud about what you think you believe when you are not digging actively in God's word? And you know what? To be honest, it's because I'm still on my soapbox. I'll get down in a second. To be honest, I actually think we shot ourselves in the foot with this one. Because we had things like Revelation seminars, and we have Bible studies that are proof text Bible studies. But guess what? Those are not teaching me how to study Scripture. Do you understand that? If I give a question with a blank and I give you a verse, does that tell you this is how you study Scripture? Because guess what? I can do that and I can teach you false stuff that way too. You know that, right? But we have not taught people how to engage in Scripture, how to, and here's another thing, how leery are we that if people actually engage in Scripture, that they might find something new. Maybe the Bible teaches something that is different than what we've taught for a while. Well, we could never have let that happen. So we need to print tracts that are more proof texting on why that can't be true, even though it says it in Scripture. But I will tell you this. The world is waiting for a people of the book. I, I was hoping to hear an amen on that. The world is waiting for a people of the book. Do you know that there is a phrase in Arabic in the Quran, several times throughout the Quran, that it says, the people of the book. There are, they, and this people of the book, they're understanding if they really read the Quran. Now, by the way, there are Muslims, just like Christians, that they are more into tradition than they are into the Quran, okay? And I'm not, I'm not saying I agree with everything in Quran or anything, but the thing is, is maybe even God inserted something into the Quran that's saying, hey, look for the people of the book because there was a book that was written before your book by a people... And they have something for you. And so they're waiting for that people of the book. Well, who is that people of the book? 
Shouldn't that be us? Shouldn't that be us? Shouldn't they be able to, to come to us and say, I believe you're a people of the book. And guess what? And I'm sorry if I'm being fairly arrogant. I, I understand that there are other Christians out there, and I think that the Lord is using them. But do you know that I have had experiences with Muslims that say to me, that have said, I don't understand other Christians. Because doesn't the scripture, your book, doesn't it say that you don't eat pork in this? Because we don't either. You know, Muslims don't eat pork. They, they follow that Levitical law too. They, they have a dietary law and they say, we don't either. Oh, and we don't drink alcohol either. And so they're waiting for people that they think are keeping the book. Well, who should that be? Well, it should be all of Jesus' followers. But, but we believe we have a special message for that. But for that to happen, you are going to have to engage in the book. I am going to have to engage in the book. And proof texting Bible studies are not enough. Revelation seminar, Rob and I were talking about this week. Revelation seminars frustrate me for one thing. And I'm not downplaying if you came in through a Revelation seminar because they have served a purpose. But what frustrate me is you say, we are talking about Revelation. But really what you're doing is you're trying to prove doctrines out of some parts of Revelation. Why don't you just do a whole year study on the book of Revelation and let the word speak for itself, right? Doesn't that sound better? Now getting back to, our, to, to what I believe makes us unique. This, now again, this is my opinion. I don't think it is only my opinion, but I think it, it is my opinion. I must state this. There is one theme that I think we have that is more complete, and it's called the great controversy. That there is a controversy between good and evil, and it started in heaven, and, and, and Christians overall believe something similar to this. But we believe specifically that it's addressed in Job. Now, do you guys know that Job was believed to be the first book written chronologically in Scripture? Okay, so go to Job if you have your, if you have your swords. Go to Job, and in verse 6, it says this. I'll, I'll give you a, 10 seconds. Job, chapter 1, verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them. The Lord said to Satan, hey, where are you coming from? Satan answered, oh, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Sort of the expression is, I'm just claimed, I've claimed my territory. I'm going all over my territory. And he says to Satan, but have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, and a man, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. He will surely curse you to your face. 
And the Lord says, okay, I'll do it. Is that what he says? Is that what it says? No, it says, then the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man, you cannot lay a finger. Now, we know that sort of changes in chapter 2 also, that the finger could be laid on him, it just couldn't kill him. And you know the story of Job, that terrible things after terrible things happen to him. And in my opinion, the reason that this is the first book written before Genesis is because before he could deal with creation and all this stuff, he had to deal with suffering. God had to deal with the immediate need. You are suffering. And I want, I want to explain it through Job. But here's the question. Satan is saying, well, the reason he's following you is you just keep bribing him. You know, there you go, follow me. All right, I'll follow you. You just keep bribing him. So what Satan is saying is, God, you're not fair. You're just not fair. Now, I don't like that word fair, though. Because some Adventists have said, this is, this is part of the great controversy, that we say God is fair. Well, guess what? According to terms, our terms, God is not fair. I'm going to say that. And I know I'm being recorded. God is not fair. Here's the thing. According to earthly terms, let me say it this way. I have two kids. Now, my two kids are different. They act different and sometimes the discipline is different. Now, you know as a teacher, it's hard. I, I once uh, took a class, and I know this might be a polarizing name sometimes in Adventism, but I took a class from George Knight. And George Knight was a teacher before he ever became a pastor. And he said this one time in class. He said, it's funny. You know, he's like, I don't envy God's position because when I taught, there were people, there were kids that I would just look at and they'd start bawling their eyes out. Oh, I'm so sorry. And then there were kids that if, you know, because remember, this is the 60s, you know, you had a paddle. He said, I could paddle, I could wail on that kid and that kid would be smiling. But you know, from the outside, you might say, that kid might say, well, you just talked to him and you're giving me a spanking? That's not fair. And you might think that. Well, I wasn't born with money that, like this person. Well, that's not fair. And God, I don't think, is really so concerned about if he's fair or not. The question is, do you believe you can trust me? Because you're all going to have a different opinion on what's fair. But he's saying, can you trust me? Am I trustable? Because that's really what Satan is saying. You're, being, you're bribing him and you're not being fair, so maybe you're not really trustable. But trusting is a choice. And that is partially the problem. Do you know that God is limited? You know, uh, when I did a week of prayer years ago in Texas, it was, it was 09, 2009, and one of the kids asked me, because I visited the Bible classes, and he said, 
you know, he's being a little bit of a smart aleck. He goes like, hey, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? I mean, these are, these are questions that have been around since Bill. Bill may have been the first one to ask that question. You know, can God make a rock? Because I'm, you know, because he was around when that stuff was happening. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? And I answered, yes. I said, that's what he did with free will. Do you know that God is limited? If you read 2 Peter 3.9, it says, he, don't count God slow or slack on this because he's delaying. But he is delaying his second returning. Why? What does he want? All to come to repentance. Now tell me, according to scripture, will all come to repentance? So wait, wait. God wants all to come to repentance, but not all are coming to repentance. So you're saying God can't always get what he wants? Hence, God is limited? Do you know that it says in Scripture in the book of Hebrews that it is impossible for God to lie? So impossible means not possible, which means he's limited. Does that make sense? And he's not even playing by the same rules that Satan can play by. Because it's impossible for him to lie. But free choice Free choice is something that God said, I know I'm going to limit myself this way, but I am going to give you the choice to be with me or not to be with me. Hence, I will make a garden, and everywhere in it you can eat, but there is this one place that you can choose to not be with me. But I will let you know, if you are not with me, connected to the life, because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life, not I have the life. I am the life. If you distance yourself from the life, what's the opposite? What's the absence of life? You will have death. They didn't understand it. But that's how much God loves is even though he knew the outcome he was still willing to give you a choice and if you look at the essence of this great controversy who really is the one on trial god you know, I've talked to, to Christians, and they use this word sovereign. You've, you've heard this, right? The sovereignty of God. And I do believe in the sovereignty of God. But they use this almost to the point where they say, well, God can just do whatever he wants. I said, well, if he didn't care what we thought and God was doing whatever he wants, then the scriptures would be one page, all right? Just believe what I say, because that's why I said it. I can do what I want. So shut up. But he doesn't do this. He constantly, constantly is telling about his love and how he interacts with people. 
I'm not actually dealing with this in the series, so I'm going to share a tidbit on this, on this God on trial. Do you know, how many of you have heard the expression or the, the terminology, the, the investigative judgment? Investigative judgment. If you grew up Seventh-day Adventist, you've probably heard about this investigative judgment. And for many decades, this investigative judgment has created fear within Seventh-day Adventists because when this anti-typical, if you are not Seventh-day Adventist and you don't understand, or if you haven't heard this before, you can come to me. I'll talk to you sometime about this. But they have thought when, when in 1844 this anti-typical Day of Atonement happens, then God goes through this process of judgment. And for all this time, I, I, it blew my mind that here we have this message, God is love, but he's, he's really just going through and judging. Well, finally, I talked to an evangelist about this, and we sort of studied it out a little bit. And my, change, my, my opinion changed. Bing, light bulb. That if God wanted to, in judgment, he could easily say, you're in, you're out, definitely you, out. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. I don't know who would be in or out there. But you would, in, out, right? Ding. Judge. Nobody, you know, he's sovereign. Hmm, that's it. But what we believe the purpose of this investigative judgment is, is for the universe to see, back to the question, is God trustable? Is God trustable? If, if I see somebody in the kingdom and somebody not in the kingdom, can I trust that God made the right call? Now, here's the thing that actually, in my own study, now I might be a heretic for this, most people actually think the anti-typical Day of Atonement ends when? Do you know? Huh? When Jesus comes, right? The second coming? I don't believe that because there still is a people that haven't investigated. If you look at the Day of Atonement in the sanctuary service, what is the very end of the Day of Atonement? What, what's the last thing to happen? Do you remember? They lead the goat out. So the, in a sense, the goat is destroyed, led to destruction. According to our theology, some Jewish theology, what does that typify? Satan, right? That eventually Satan will be destroyed. Does that happen when Jesus comes the first time? Well, I guess the second time? No. Not until after the millennium. So God has let the whole universe explore this out, but there's still a group that haven't. Yeah, us. So he says, I'll give you a thousand years. I'll give you that. That should be plenty of time. Look at the books. Do you think I'm trustable? I know that Grandma Margaret isn't here, and, and I know that you had a heart for her, and I, you just got to look. Oh, and you see him? Yeah, he's been in prison for murder for so many years. Just look. We've recorded everything. Do you see how God doesn't have to do that? But the irony is God does have to do that because God 
is love. It's his nature. He has to do this. He has to know that you trust him. You have to know that you trust him. So throughout these next few weeks, we will be exploring this. We will be going through why, how does the second coming show that God is love? How does the law show God is love? Even this thing that, the seventh-day Sabbath, is it? Hopefully it shows God is love. The old and new covenants, God is love. What happens after death? How does that show God is love? I want to finish what, the, what she writes in The Great Controversy because I think it's such a beautiful statement. It says, The great controversy has ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate, in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. Yevareka Adonai Vayishmareka, Yaer Adonai Panav Alecha Vichuneka, Yisa Adonai Panav Alecha Vyasem Lecha Shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Father, anoint us. May we be proud of our heritage. But more than that, may you inspire us to be people of the word so that we hunger and thirst to dig in and grow in our relationship with you and may people know that we are believers in you because of our love. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Happy Sabbath, everybody.